Daniel chapter 1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. These he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia and put in the treasure house of his God. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, chief of his court officials, to bring in some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility, young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was to teach them the language and literature of the Babylonians. The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. They were to be trained for three years, and after that, they were to enter the king's service. Among these were some from Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. The chief official gave them new names. To Daniel, the name Belteshazzar. To Hananiah, Shadrach. To Mishael, Meshach. And to Azariah, Abednego. But Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine, and he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself this way. Now God had caused the official to show favor and sympathy to Daniel. But the official told Daniel, I'm afraid my lord the king, who has assigned your food and drink, I'm afraid of my lord the king, who has assigned your food and drink. Why should he see you looking worse than the other young men your age? The king would then have my head because of you. Daniel then said to the guard, whom the chief official had appointed over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, Please test your servants for ten days. Give us nothing but vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then compare our appearance with that of the young men who eat the royal food, and treat your servants in accordance with what you see. So he agreed to this and tested them for ten days. At the end of the ten days, they looked healthier and better nourished than any of the young men who ate the royal food. So the guard took away their choice food and the wine and they were to, the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables instead. To these four young men, God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning. And Daniel could understand visions and dreams of all kinds. At the end of the time set by the king to bring them in, the chief official presented them to Nebuchadnezzar. The king talked with them, and he found none equal to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So they entered the king's service. In every matter of wisdom and, undertake, and understanding about which the king questioned them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters in his whole kingdom. And Daniel remained there until the first year of King Cyrus. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Elise. This is God's word for us this morning. We are going to spend uh, the next two months in the book of Daniel. Uh, and uh, I'm, I'm looking forward to this. I'm looking forward to walking through this interesting book. It's a very interesting book, Daniel. It's located right next to uh, a lot of what are called the minor prophets in the Old Testament. But it's not a purely prophetic book. It's got, there's some visions, some prophecy, um, but it also has uh, some history in it. So it just tells the story of God's people carried off 
into exile. But it tells that story through uh, the very personal narrative of Daniel and his three friends, uh, who we know as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Um, it's, it, it, some of the language in Daniel is apocalyptic, right? It shares actually some characteristics with Revelation, with the, the last book of the Bible. Um, and yet it's also very, very personal, very, very down to earth with the decisions that Daniel and his friends have to make, uh, living as God's people in exile. And that is the question that is before us as we walk through this book of Daniel. Is that how do we live as God's people in exile? Um, because I believe that we ourselves as the church are in exile. Um, it's more obvious when we read Daniel's story, right? Physically dislocated from the the home country that he grew up in, taken off to Babylon, to a completely foreign culture and foreign land. Um, Very obvious that Daniel is in exile. And I think it's maybe a little less obvious uh, for for us. Um, But uh, it's true that the the church, part part of how we understand how we live in the world, how we relate to the world, how we relate to our culture, is through understanding what it means to be God's people living in exile. First Peter, or Peter, when he's writing his first letter to the church, he opens this way. He says, this letter is to God's elect, to the church, to the exiles scattered throughout the provinces. So Peter understands that part of what it means to be the church is to be uh, in exile. And, and so looking back then at uh, the story of, of uh, the Israelites in exile can be helpful for us to figure out, okay, how do we live today in 2017 here in Seattle? What does the experience of being God's people in exile have to teach us? The first step in figuring this out is simply recognizing that we are in exile, right? Just kind of acknowledging, oh, okay, there's something that's not quite home about the world in which we live. Um, the, the word foreigner or stranger is another, another way maybe we can think of this. A friend of mine recently described himself here in, uh, in America, in Seattle in 2017, as politically homeless. Uh, and, and what he meant by that was that neither of the parties that our country offered him really felt like a place where he could land and say, yes, these represent my, my views as a Christian. These represent my priorities and my values as a Christian. Um, it left him feeling homeless. And I think that's one way in which uh, we might experience uh, some of what it means to be in exile. There are many other ways uh, in which we find the, the broader culture is not going to, to support and encourage uh, the priorities and, and the values and the, and the vision of, of the Christian faith, whether it's in sexual morals, whether it's how money is viewed and treated, or, or people, how people's how people are, are given worth and how they are treated. So the, so the first step uh, is simply to recognize that we are in exile. And again, as I was saying, it's, it's easy to see that in Daniel's life. Um, and, and we don't know if Daniel had kids or not, but if you could imagine Daniel's kids growing up in Babylon, maybe, maybe that's a, a helpful way for us to think about ourselves is, is they would have grown up sort of swimming in the water, swimming in the cultural waters of Babylon. And it would have been a, a more of a difficult task for them to tease out how they were God's people living in exile. 
And I think that's part of the task before us. Um, so, recognizing that we are in exile. The, the second step, the second task for us is to recognize that uh, even though we are in exile, God is still on the throne. God is still sovereign. And we, we see this uh, in verse 2 of this passage that we read. From the very beginning, it's clear that uh, this is not simply a story about Nebuchadnezzar, the powerful Babylonian king coming in and you know, demolishing Jerusalem and, and carting off God's people. The language instead is that God delivered the king and some of the nobility into Nebuchadnezzar's hands. And there is this strong theme throughout Daniel that we'll find, that even as God's people are figuring out how to live in exile, that God is still sovereign, that God is in control, that God is actually using these foreign kings um, for his purposes. That's not to say that he approves of everything that they do, but that is to say that, that, that God still somehow, mysteriously and in, in his power, uses leaders of this world um, to accomplish his purposes. And that is sometimes hard to see, but that is something that we can see in the story. That is something that Daniel clearly understands and believes. This, uh, this event of being carried off into exile would have been incredibly faith-shaking for the Israelites, right? They are being carted away from Jerusalem, which was the heart of what? The, the promised land, right? This place where God had, had promised his people that he was going to take them after delivering them from, from slavery in Egypt, bringing them across the desert. And he, he gave them the promised land. This was God's land for his people. And now they're not there anymore. And now they're off in a foreign land, they don't have the temple. They don't have any of the support systems for their faith that they had in their home country. And yet, God is still sovereign, and their faith is still real. It makes me ask questions about, uh, about myself and about some of the things that are maybe support systems for my faith, that, that if they were to be taken away, um, would my faith stand? Would I still be able to follow faithfully after Christ? It's a good question. One that that I hope the answer is yes. So, recognizing, uh, recognizing that we are in exile, recognizing that in exile, God is still sovereign. Um, One more thing on God's sovereignty. Uh, The, the, the book of Daniel has so many visions and dreams that either Daniel has or some of the kings have and Daniel interprets. And all of them talk about the, um, the fleetingness of man's kingdoms, of, of humanity's kingdoms, and of these leaders. That these leaders come and they go. That God um, uses them and, and then brings them to nothing. Um, but that there is one kingdom that will last forever and one kingdom that is secure through uh, through all history, and that is God's kingdom. And, and later in Daniel, we get just a glimpse of a description of, uh, of the coming of Christ who will inaugurate God's kingdom that will outlast all these other kingdoms. And, uh, so as we, as we move forward through the weeks, keep an ear out for that. All right. Well, to the primary question that I want to ask us this morning, which is this, how do we live faithful lives in exile? 
How do we live as God's people, as Christians in exile? And the church has tended to answer this question uh, with two extremes. And Daniel shows us a third way, but, but the, the two extremes that we have tended, I mean, you can look back through the history of the church and see this pendulum swinging from one to the other. One is isolation, right? This is how we live in exile. This is how we live in, in a culture that, that doesn't uh, nurture our faith, uh, doesn't share our values or our vision for uh, shalom, for, for what the good life is. Um, and so we isolate ourselves. We, we protect ourselves from the culture. We say culture bad, church good, and we just we, we create a separation there and we maintain this sense of purity, that we're pure, we're untouched by the evil, dark, dirty culture. The other side is total absorption, right? Where there's no real distinction between us and the world. Uh, maybe we put a Christian sticker, like a little fish sticker on it, and we're like, oh, that's, that's Christian. And then we, and we live... Practically speaking, um, as as just as as worldly people, so absorption and isolation, I think, are the two extremes that we often bounce between. And maybe you can even recognize that in your own life, um, times in your life when you have tended towards one or the other, or maybe you were raised in a church uh, that was more isolationist, uh, and then in reaction, you know, you you've swung over to this side, and, and now there's. There's maybe not very much that distinguishes you as a Christian, as a follower of Christ, from the world. The third way that Daniel reveals to us, that Daniel shows us is the, the way that we can live as people who are in exile, is with conviction. Not isolation, not absorption, but with conviction. Daniel drew a line in the sand he, he, he took a stand. He, the, the NIV says that he was resolved. He made up his mind. He made a decision. And it, uh, it was the food. The food was too much. That was where Daniel said, I can't go there. No, my, my relationship with God, my identity as God's child is too important. You could change his name, right? He was given a new name, and he didn't, he didn't fight that, or he didn't resist that. He knew who he was. He knew his identity, and he knew that a new name wasn't going to change his primary identity as a child of God. You could enroll him in this cultural indoctrination class, right? Teaching him the language and the, all the literature, the great artwork of, of Babylon, uh, which was intended to, to, to make these, um, these exiles into good Babylonians, right? Bring them up so that they, wouldn't, they would be able to serve in the king's court as good Babylonians. Um, but he... He was comfortable with that because he, wasn't, he knew that he wasn't going to unlearn the roots of his faith that he had been brought up with in Jerusalem. Um, my, my college president used to say all the time, and I don't think this was original to him, that all truth is God's truth, right? So we don't have to be afraid of truth. In fact, we welcome it so we can celebrate science. Yay, as a lot of people did yesterday. Um, and so Daniel didn't have to be afraid of learning new things um, because he knew... He knew who he was, and, and he knew the core of his faith. He knew those core convictions. But the food was where he needed to draw the line. Um, and this is, a, this is an interesting passage to explore after summer sermon last week, where uh, we were looking at Acts 10, and Peter receives this vision, right, of all of these animals coming down from heaven, and God saying, kill and eat. And, and Peter was like, no, 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 I've... I've 
done what Daniel's doing. I'm, I've stayed pure, right? I've, I have not eaten the, the food I'm not supposed to eat. Uh, and God says, don't call the things that I have said are clean, unclean. And lest we get sidetracked into a long discussion of Old Testament purity laws and food, what was acceptable and unacceptable, I think Daniel's words himself, uh, or, or, or the account of what, why Daniel made this decision, are, are more helpful than, than us to really explore the, the food the food is sort of secondary to the why. Verse 8 says this, Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine. And that defilement was the main thing. Daniel didn't want anything to come between him and God. He didn't want anything to damage that relationship. And it's the priority of that relationship that is the, the main thing that leads Daniel to draw this line in the sand, that leads him to say, this is my conviction. This is... This is the core. Um, we know that the point is not food, right? The New Testament makes that clear. Um, but, but where might that be for us? Where might we need to be drawing lines in the sand, living with conviction, living not isolated from the world, not absorbed into the culture so there's no distinction, but where might we need to make a stand out of some conviction that this is central to who God is calling me to be as a Christ follower. Daniel's name means, roughly translated, God is my judge. And I think that it's this perspective uh, that allows him both to have the freedom to say yes to some things, to recognize that not everything in culture is purely evil. We see God at work within culture, right? We see um, we see beauty in the arts, we see uh, movements towards justice, and we can celebrate those things. We can be excited about those things. And so there's, there is a freedom we have to say yes to some things, but, but not everything. There are things that we're called to say no to, lines we're called to draw, and I think Daniel having this perspective, God is my judge, it, it, it made me think again, uh, a phrase I used a few weeks ago in a sermon, quorum deo, right? Living, we live our lives Quorum Deo, this Latin phrase for in the face of God. We live our lives in the face of God. And this means that there are times when we have to stand on convictions that we hold. Convictions that God's word leads us to. Perhaps maybe it's at work, right? Uh, tempted to sort of fudge the truth a little bit so that you don't look as bad or your team doesn't look as bad, um, there's the temptation to fudge the truth, to not be completely honest. Uh, and yet we read that God desires truth in the inmost parts, that Jesus himself is the way, the truth, and the life. And we see this high value placed on truth and truth-telling in Scripture, and we draw a line. We, we, we live with conviction there, and we say, I'm not sure the outcome of this, but I know that I need to speak the truth. Maybe, maybe it's with our schedules. What, do our, what does our schedule and the way we order our week say about our priorities, say about what is most important to us? And then we read in the book of Hebrews that we need to consider how we might spur one another on towards love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another all the more as we see the day approaching. Right? Where are we drawing lines 
uh, in our schedule to carve out space and time for this, this mutual encouragement, this time of meeting together to encourage each other in the faith. Where are we carving out times in our schedule for rest, trusting that there's maybe some wisdom in the Sabbath? And again, I've already mentioned this, but it's not just negative things, right? It's not just saying culture bad, this is where we draw the line. Um, we, we also can um, draw very inclusive lines as well. Um, I, I was thinking about, so this language of drawing the lines, right? And I was thinking about the green bean, and I was like, oh, we, we talk about uh, a lot of lines at the green bean, this sort of multiple bottom lines for the green bean. This is a way that we are choosing to live with conviction in this world through the green bean, right? One of the bottom lines of the green bean is the way that, in which we seek to actually serve our neighbors and our neighborhood, whether or not they have money to buy a cup of coffee, right? That's a place where people can come in, no matter if they have money or not, and get a cup of coffee. That's one of our bottom lines, is serving our neighbors. Uh, one of the other ones is actually serving well and, and, and seeking to bless those who are growing the coffee. So we use beans that are fairly traded, and we work with a roaster who shares that value. Um, we, we seek to treat our employees well. That's another bottom line. Uh, we don't view them as cogs in the wheel, but rather as, as people made in the image of God. Uh, so we want to treat them well and fairly. And in order to sustain this ministry, we need a financial bottom line as well. And we have to, we have to make a profit. We have to make money in order to keep this ministry going. So all of those are the lines that, that we have drawn at the Green Bean that help us live out, uh, uh, out of conviction there. One other thing I was pondering uh, after reading this chapter, spending some time in this chapter, is that Daniel is most likely uh, a teenage boy when he gets brought from, uh, f- from Judah, from Jerusalem, to captivity in Babylon. He's a young lad. And yet he has, as a young lad, the wisdom and the strength and the courage to make these decisions, knowing what to say yes to and what to say no to, and, and the, the courage to, to live with conviction, not knowing what the outcome of that would be. And it makes me think about all of the work that all of us are doing raising the children in this church, um, raising them to be people who, when they head off, maybe not to Babylonian captivity, but to school or to work or to university, um, that they would have some sense of what it means for them to live as an exile, as, as a Christian uh, in a setting that isn't going to nurture and encourage that faith, but that they would be so steeped in, in God's word and, and in the courage it takes to live like that, both from the examples of all of us lived out before them and the, all of the good work that the teachers are doing teaching them, that they would be able to live like Daniel. That's my hope for my kids. It's interesting to note, too, as Daniel and his friends make this decision, and this, I think, helps, uh, can help us sort of live in this, in this third way, they, they have decided what their conviction is. And I think that's some work that each one of us has to do. Um, we have to take God's word, we have to look at our own circumstances, and we have to decide where are those places where we need to live with conviction. And as they do that, though, what they don't do is say, and all y'all need to live this way, too. Right? They, they don't impose their, um, their convictions on the rest of the people, although 
in a, in a humorous way, it, that ends up happening by the Babylonians. Uh, they say, oh, this diet is actually working pretty well. Everyone's on this diet. Um, but what they do is they live out of their conviction from a, a quiet confidence, right? Not hammering people over the head with it, which I think is something the church has been guilty of doing. Um, they live out of this place of conviction with a quiet confidence, letting the, the evidence of their lives be the thing that ultimately does convince their captors that, oh, this is, there's actually some practical wisdom here. Who'd have thought? That, too, I think, can be instructive to us as we live as foreigners, as exiles in this world. So I'm excited to spend some time in Daniel, and I hope you'll consider some of these questions that we've posed this morning. Where are places uh, where we have the freedom to say yes and the freedom to identify God at work within our culture, and we can, we can celebrate those things? And, and where are those places where, not, not in an isolationist, fearful way, but in a, in a place of, from a place of conviction, where we need to say, this, this is what it means to be a follower of Christ, and it means I have to cut across the grain of culture here. I have to, I have to say things that, that might not be popular. I have to hold, hold to a conviction that might not be supported in our culture. I was, I was thinking about uh, what we did this morning in, in baptism, that part of what we are doing with Trigvi is we are, uh, we are welcoming him into this, this life of an exile, right? We're, we're declaring that his, his primary identity, his primary citizenship is not of this world. Though he's in this world, just like each one of us, his primary citizenship, his primary identity is not of this world. And that's, uh, that's the challenge before each one of us. That's been the challenge of the church for centuries. So I don't have any easy answers for you today. Um, but I would challenge you to ponder those questions. Pray about this. Um, look at the life of Daniel. Look at how he lives in exile. This language of exile, as I mentioned earlier, is throughout also uh, the book of First Peter. So First Peter is going to be a little bit of a companion book to Daniel as we walk through this series. And as we come to the table this morning, to the Lord's table, I want to read a few verses from 1 Peter. Right? He understands that being the church is being in exile. He's going to help us connect that experience to Jesus. Jesus, who is the one who sets us apart. Right? Jesus is the one who makes us holy, makes us set apart from the world. Um, but as we look at Jesus' life, right, he obviously was in the world, in it but not of it. That's the challenge. So hear these words from 1 Peter chapter 1. Since you call on a father who judges each person's work impartially, live out your time as foreigners, as exiles, here in reverent fear. For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors, but rather with the precious blood of Christ a lamb without blemish or defect. He was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. Through him, you believe in God, who raised him from the dead and glorified him. So your faith and hope are in God. Let's pray together.
Lord, we need your help. This is not an easy task that we are called to. But we trust that you are with us, that you are strengthening us for this task, that you are giving us wisdom and knowledge and courage. That we might go into our work, into our homes, to our neighbors. Then we, we might know how to be in this world, but not of it. How to live open to the world, but with clear convictions. Lord, for each one of us here, speak to us about areas of our lives where we need to live out of conviction. And God, we thank you, we thank you, we thank you for your grace that when we fail to live this way, when we isolate ourselves out of fear or when we become too worldly, when we buy into the lies that this world tells us about, pursuing pleasure above all things or pursuing our own gain above the, at the expense of others. When we, when we sin, there is grace. We are so thankful for that. We are so desperate and so in need of your grace in our lives. So as we come to your table this morning, Lord, forgive us for our sins and give us strength. Fill us with your power to live this way in this world. Make us like Daniel. We ask this in Jesus' strong name. Amen.